this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i'm your host g sampath there has been a lot of debate over the karnataka high court's verdict upholding a ban on the wearing of hijab in educational institutions in a nutshell the high court's judgment appears to hold that the hijab is not an essential part of islam and therefore the right to wear it cannot be protected under the constitutional right to freedom of religion guaranteed by article 25 now it has been recognized that this case involves a number of key constitutional rights and principles such as the right to freedom of expression the right to freedom of conscience and freedom of religion the right to privacy the principles of equality and non discrimination and the principle of secularism to name a few the judgment delivered by the three judge bench does engage with all these principles in a manner of speaking but not everyone is convinced that the court has applied the constitutional provisions correctly has the court really advanced the cause of women's emancipation and secularism as the verdict claims or is it possible that it may have misconstrued certain constitutional principles we we'll look for some insights to these questions from our guest today anup surendranath who teaches constitutional law at national law university delhi anup thank you so much for joining us thanks ampar thanks for having me today anup as someone who teaches constitutional law and who has been studying it for years are you convinced by the verdict's line that the right to wear a hijab inside the classroom does not merit protection under the constitutional right to freedom of religion no i am not i think it is a very unconvincing judgment uh, and does not ask the relevant constitutional questions that it should have asked it it ignores questions of of equality discrimination uh the freedom of expression and questions of liberty and autonomy uh under article 21 of the constitution and and very narrowly focuses on uh, i mean its in-depth treatment is only on the freedom of religion in under article 25 and its treatment of uh all the other issues and uh is leaves a lot to be desired and even does not address many questions like the right to education that is recognized as a fundamental right so yes the detailed treatment is limited to the freedom of religion and many of the other questions that it should have addressed are very poorly addressed or not addressed at all right so some people have criticized the verdict as giving a legal stamp uh, to majoritarianism now you said that this judgment has uh, dealt with uh, largely on freedom of religion and in that context this comes as something which is rather uh, unusual because if we read the judgment it does invoke the principles of positive secularism so to speak uh, dharma nirpekshata and so on so how do we understand uh, this seeming contradiction where it is invoking secularism but uh, many are saying that it has given a legal stamp to majoritarianism i i think sampath it requires us to understand unfortunately certain nuances of constitutional adjudication under the freedom of religion and i'm just going to try and make it as simple as possible for a general audience to understand now the question really is what religious practices are protected by the constitution right what can what are those religious practices which the state can't interfere with right and and you know there has been a lot of disagreement and the question is pending 
before a nine-judge bench of the uh, Supreme Court of India on the issue of what you must have heard as the essential religious practices, right? Now, the question is, how do you, the, the, the doctrine that has been developed by the Supreme Court over the last few decades has been that for a religious practice to be protected from state interference, it must be an essential religious practice. And there has been a lot of critique about the dissatisfaction and the unviability of this doctrine. Right? And that is why it has been sent to a nine-judge bench of the, Constitu uh, of, of the Supreme Court. Uh, and and it's pending there, and 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 the issue with the essential religious practices is, is that how is a court like how is a court going to read all these religious texts, irrespective of whichever religion you're talking about, and understand uh, what is essential to that religion, right? And much of the critique and the reason for sending it to the nine judge bench focuses around that, right? And and therefore. Uh, that judges cannot be theologians uh, and, and figure out what is happening in the religious texts and this whole attempt to figure out what is essential, what is not essential is seen over time to be a largely futile one. As opposed to you might ask then, then how should we decide what religious practices require protection, right? Many other jurisdictions have gone down the line of is it a genuinely held belief, right? Uh, so you can see the difference. The difference between asking whether Something is an essential religious practice as opposed to asking whether the belief in question is a genuinely held belief are completely different constitutional questions, right? And you can see in the judgment of the Karnataka High Court, this, uh, you know, it gets into this kind of looking at religious texts, quoting from religious texts, trying to interpret it. I mean, and then all the problems with the essential religious practices test plays out in the verdict, right? So, irrespective of whether what concept we uh, adopt of secularism uh, or approach to it, the, the court should have restricted itself to saying, how do we decide the freedom of religion question, right? And, and more importantly, to acknowledge that it is not just a freedom of religion question, right? Uh, I think its treatment of freedom of religion itself uh, is rather poor, right? The entire overarching conception in the judgment is one of schools as places of discipline and what it calls as a qualified public space, right? Um, and, and it has a very uh, unconvincing treatment of reasonable accommodation. The, the re question of reasonable accommodation of religious practices has been upheld in certain contexts, even in the, uh, in the context of the armed forces and the police, right? In terms of turban or beard or whatever, right? Yeah, Anup, you had mentioned about uh, the genuinely held belief as an as a different framework for addressing this essential uh, practice uh, issue. Now, how would you, how would, I, suppose the court had gone down that road, how would it have tested whether the hijab is a genuinely held belief or not, without going into theology and all that? Yeah, because it would say, is there any basis for this belief, right? That, you know, in, in, in the, the, those are two different tests uh, is what I'm trying to say. To ask whether something is an essential religious practice, it's one thing to ask, is the hijab an essential religious practice? Or quite different to ask, is it a genuinely held belief, right? In a genuinely held belief, you know, uh, it is about saying, is there any basis at all 
for this belief that you have so what would be the basis for for hijab uh, uh, being a genuinely held belief what if the, the other side went to argue no it's not a genuinely held belief how would you disprove that so it is about to what extent do you need to engage with religious sources right in the essential religious practices test the problem is that you need to undertake a very authoritative assessment of it by the judges themselves whereas it is a far more manageable question at least for judges to ask is this a genuinely held belief that is there any basis for it in the religion at all for you to have that is a much more handleable question for the judges and the courts rather than to pronounce definitive uh, judgment on religious texts right and that is the crucial subtle difference uh, between these two tests right and and in this conversation of secularism you know do we need to have uniformity all of that i think sort of confuse the constitutional conversation right if you had asked even if you wanted to stick focus on freedom of religion uh, i would have said that uh, you end up doing it the wrong way you don't give sufficient treatment to the principle of reasonable accommodation which the court itself has done supreme court itself has done in different contexts and therefore i think it's a wholly unconvincing judgment on even on article 25 but having said that as i already said so, sorry to interrupt haven't the petitioners themselves invoked uh, essential practice in their plea i mean arguing that hijab is an essential practice have, did they make a mistake in doing so or because couldn't they have uh, asked for the right to wear the hijab on other grounds you know like such as right to education or whatever why did they include this religious uh, practice essential religious practice aspect in their petition that's right that's 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 a very good question sampath actually and 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 i tend to agree with the uh, underlying uh, uh, sentiment of that question right that given that the essential religious practices is the dominant framework under which freedom of religion gets decided right uh, and that is what it is uh, you know i i really don't see the merit uh in in arguing on that basis a that is the wrong test the supreme court as i said the supreme court is considering that but you know the essential religious practices test is almost always bound to fail you almost and and i think you take on too high a burden it is to say that oh, only such religious practices as are essential and then the courts go into this discovery process of whether is it essential not essential and that that is just going to lead to uh just terrible consequences as we have seen uh in this uh in this judgment so i agree with that yes i would have rather seen a uh, a uh, uh, argument strategy that is focusing on uh the rights in article 21 of liberty privacy autonomy uh a focus on uh, the right to expression in article 19 1a uh equality and anti discrimination provisions in article 14 and uh, 15 of the constitution i think these are all very crucial integral issues that go, uh, that get very very peripheral treatment in the judgment and yeah right so you spoke just now about all these other uh, uh rights and freedom such as you know right to liberty freedom of expression and right to privacy uh, could you talk a little bit about how the judgment uh, relates to these constitutional guarantees and how it should have or could have perhaps related to these uh, constitutional guarantees so you know essentially uh, you could you could frame it in terms of saying 
um under let's say the 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 your liberty or your privacy or your autonomy under article 21 to say that i should be able to wear uh, uh, a certain uh, kind of clothing right uh, that i want to be i should be able to wear that kind of clothing and there should be very good reason right the point in the article 21 analysis is that the state must have must show very good reason to interfere with it right and even in article 19 which is on the freedom of expression uh, the supreme court in the judgment in nalsa which is on the rights of transgenders has also said that uh, your freedom to wear uh, sort of reflect your identity through what you wear is an integral part of the freedom of expression right of course everybody would know uh, who's listening to this that oh rights are not absolute there can be restrictions there can be limitations and they are absolutely right and the focus is how what limitations or restrictions can the state impose and there i think the judgment is a complete failure right it says and let me just try and explain this as simply to to your audience uh, to say that the court is saying that look there are certain kind of spaces right what it calls qualified public spaces where these substantive rights it agrees that there are these substantive rights right where these substantive rights don't operate in their full they only become derivative rights and therefore the burden of justification on the state is far far lower we don't need to get into all these tests that the supreme court has developed over the years to judge state action the state has to provide certain kinds of justifications that have been developed in constitutional law if it wants to interfere or limit rights the karnataka high court judgment is saying oh we are not going to apply those doctrines here those doctrines that speak to limitation because you don't have full rights here because this is a qualified public space and i think some of the analogies are very very problematic they say like oh like under trials or convicts in prison uh, or defense camps uh, or, or and some of the examples that they take is very problematic constitutional reasoning right you can't and the supreme court itself in the context of privacy has held very explicitly that there is no concept of this core right and peripheral privacy right right they they've said that you can't make this distinction between or oh, there are some core privacy rights and then there are you know those peripheral rights on on and i think they end up doing this on both the freedom of expression in article 19 and uh, the uh, the the freedoms and the liberties in article 21 to do this really problematic uh, maneuver to say that oh these are you know in this context of a school it is it's, it's a overall uh, an overarching interest of discipline decorum that matter and this is like this must be a qualified uh, space uh, like any any of those other examples that they give i think that just can't stand constitutional scrutiny i mean it's uh, it's very worrying so they are saying that this right to wear a hijab in this qualified space uh, in the context of freedom of expression and privacy is a derivative right and not a substantive substantive right and therefore are not subject to that kind of rigorous test uh, constitutional rights will need to undergo exactly exactly so you know the the the, the court is a, what it's trying to do is is i think it uh, is saying that 
once it moves into this uh, domain of derivative rights, it's saying, oh, all those burden uh, burdens that the state needs to discharge in justifying its actions are no longer applicable here because this is now a qualified public space kind of argument. Uh, and there, you know, these substantive rights don't apply. Yeah. Okay, so th- that means in terms of, I'm just curious, in terms of a legal maneuvering kind of a scenario, if you move from uh, whatever public space to a qualified public space, all fundamental rights can then become derivative, is it? Including right to life, everything. Like- yeah, so, <laughs> so, of course, even in the prison context, the Supreme Court has for decades now held that it's not like your uh, rights completely get extinguished or whatever, right? They say that, you know, these rights continue to apply. Uh, and even here, just to be careful that the, what the court is trying to say is that not that the rights are extinguished, but they become of such inferior quality, right, that the state does not have to provide the kind of justifications that it might be otherwise required. In privacy, you need to show, the doc, uh, you know, there's this proportionality doctrine that was developed in the privacy case in Puttuswami, I'm sure many of the uh, listeners would have heard about that, or in the Aadhaar case, right, where there are all these elaborate tests that the state has to meet and justify uh, to infringe upon certain kinds of rights. And the court is saying none of that is applicable here because of the kind of space we are talking about. And, you know, there are these other kinds of spaces where you wouldn't argue that uh, the state has the same burden of justification. So, similarly, in the interest of uh, discipline and decorum in schools, uh, the state need not do that here also, right? Which is which is mind-boggling. What does one say, right? To say, to make these comparisons and do that kind of legal maneuvering, uh, I think is completely unjustified and lacks any real basis in constitutional law. Right. And coming to uh, the other right you spoke about at the beginning, the right to education. How does the judgment address the question of a violation of a right to education, which is what is going to happen if hijab-wearing girls are not allowed uh, into educational institutions? Absolutely, right? And and, and, and it's, I think it's one of the great failings of the judgment that there is complete silence on that. Uh, it is a point that is not addressed, right? Again, I would ask the same question, Sampal. If you want to infringe the right to education, what are the justifications the state must have to do so? And, and But that, that is not addressed. The right to education point is not even addressed in the judgment. Yeah, but but I'm, I'm just curious again, what, what possible justifications could there be to infringe the right to education of a child? No, I, I really don't see it. <laughs> and I really don't see it, right? The court seems to be saying, the Karnataka High Court seems to be saying that the state has the power to prescribe the state or the whatever the uh, the school committees or whatever under the relevant legislations and the rules have the power to prescribe uniforms. But that completely misunderstands the question. Nobody is disagreeing with the power of the state or the school committees or whatever else to prescribe a uniform. And the court answers that question. Oh, that there is a power to prescribe a uniform. The question really is, do you have the power to ban the wearing of the hijab? And that is not addressed. That question of very serious question of uh, what can, what powers can you give to the government? What can you do through a government order? What can the school committee do? Are all very crucial questions of administrative law, right? 
that the judgment completely uh, misses it it answers all of that by saying by by arguing at great length that the government uh, can issue a government order or the school development committees can prescribe uniforms nobody is disagreeing with that of course they can prescribe uniforms but that that just sets up a straw man to attack and it attacks a straw man whereas the question is completely different where is, is do you have the power to prohibit the hijab right so so when trying to answer this question about uh, you know uh, the ban on the hijab i mean i found it very interesting that the verdict is citing the architect of the constitution dr ambedkar and it is citing a long excerpt uh, from one of his essays where he is uh, criticizing the parda you know and he, and he has a lot of uh, uh, critical things to say about uh, you know how the parda is affecting women and so on and it is saying because ambedkar uh, was very much against the parda it's it's as good a reason uh, for justifying a ban on the hijab i mean is this a correct uh, parallel to draw that the parda and hijab are like are they quite different uh, uh, garments absolutely they are very different right uh, and and i think it just misunderstands uh, that that paragraph that you're talking about misunderstands what we are talking about really and nonetheless as as a as a constitutional scholar my concern is you know you have a whole bunch of things that existing precedents and case law require high courts to do by virtue of the supreme court doing a higher court having said certain things you can't circumvent that by citing dr b r ambedkar's opinion on something right you have to say that the constitutional position is this right and how do we justify it what is our what are our justifications under the terms of that constitutional law requirements as recognized by various uh, judgments of the supreme court those judgments are binding i mean that is one of the crucial elements of uh, our legal system and our judicial system that the high court is bound by decisions that the supreme court has given and here you have an example of the court trying uh, different uh, legal arguments and not engaging with the law as laid down by the supreme court right and that must worry us as to how adjudication in these matters happen right and coming to the question of uh, uniform uh, which you referred to earlier i mean we all associate uh, uniforms and schools together and uh, but in this judgment is the question of uniform in the context of educational goals a little bit sort of uh, getting mixed up in a in a strange way you know because uniform is of course essential in a school context but in a plural society like india there is also a need to accommodate diversity and we have seem to have done that in the past with regard to the sikh community for instance so what are your comments on this aspect no i i think there were paths here that could have easily been uh, reconciled right that to say that a wearing of the head scarf right uh, of the uh, right in no way takes away from the requirement of wearing the uniform and and one can argue on the merits and demerits of having a uniform but even assuming that it is absolutely fine to have a uniform in a school right how does the court really does not answer the question of why can't it allow as i initially started by saying why can't it allow for this reasonable accommodation by saying that you can wear the hijab and you can wear the school uniform and and i think a lot of constitutional adjudication is about sensible balancing of interests right and of rights and you just don't see that in this judgment you don't see sufficient acknowledgement 
of of uh, the rights uh, that emanate from the, our need to protect diversity, pluralism, all of that is just given a complete go by, and that easily that middle path of reasonable accommodation could have been taken and should have been taken in this case, which unfortunately the court has chosen not to. Right. So, given that the verdict seems to have sort of uh, given the short shrift to many uh, Supreme Court judgments on important constitutional principles. It does look like uh, it's most definitely going on appeal to the Supreme Court. And until the Supreme Court uh, hears the case and uh, delivers its own judgment, uh, what legal options or remedies uh, do you think are available for uh, students, uh, girl students who wear the hijab, but who also need to attend classes and sit for exams and so on? I, I hope that unlike the Karnataka High Court, uh, which refused to give interim relief, Right and said that uh, you know if you want to go to school you have to go. nobody can wear any kind of religious attire right and and refuse that interim relief uh, and completely going against the logic of interim of interim reliefs. I hope the Supreme Court uh, will act otherwise and with more wisdom uh, to say that pending our adjudication of this case right until we decide this case we should not infringe the right to education of. Uh, these girls and women, right, and they must be allowed to go uh, to schools or uh, their PU colleges or other degree colleges um, wearing uh, their headscarves pending this decision. And once we dis- once they decide that, we'll see, right, uh, that then everybody is bound by the decision of the Supreme Court. But at least till that time, the interim decision, I think, the wise thing to do would be to uh, say that in the interim, they can uh, attend school wearing the hijab. Right. One one has to wait and see how the Supreme Court uh, handles this case and whether or not uh, interim uh, relief uh, will be made available to these uh, girl students. And at any rate, one hopes that uh, there is recognition, uh, at least a universal recognition that the core issue here is actually the right to education of uh, the children of India and hope uh, that we sort of come to a decision around that core issue. If those of you, if you're interested in a very detailed constitutional assessment uh, of these issues, uh, we've just, uh, a bunch of constitutional law scholars have just released a very detailed constitutional assessment of the hijab. Uh, It's like a 60-page document uh, which has been uploaded uh, on live law. Uh, You know, you're free to access it. Uh, So please, uh, please do that. Yes, I I do hope our listeners uh, do go and check it out. And I'm sure they'll find a lot of uh, interesting insights uh, and things to ponder in in that document as well. Thank you, Anup. Thank you so much for your time. And we hope uh, we we have you back sometime again in the future to discuss more such constitutional issues. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you, Samuel. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.